0: Hey, everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 79 of Yogaland. So this week, this is episode number three of my holiday series. I will forever be an editor and editors like to think of content in helpful packages for people. So that's why I've created a holiday series for you. And episode one of that series is with Gina Caputo from two weeks ago. We talked about her yoga off the mat challenge. Episode two was the Roger Cole episode on the barrel reflex and how you can use that reflex to maximize your restorative yoga poses. This episode is with Faith Hunter. Faith Hunter is a meditation and yoga teacher based in New York and Washington, D.C. She's got a yoga studio in Washington, D.C. in Adams Morgan called Embrace Yoga. And she's also the founder of Spiritually Fly, which is her philosophy that celebrates every moment of life and uses yoga's tools of sound, both chanting and music, breath and movement, in a fresh and modern way to encourage students to embrace their unique flow in life. And Faith is a great example of her own philosophy. I first met Faith when I was working at Yoga Journal. She's been on our cover. She was also our basics model for a whole year. And she was always just like, the utmost professional person to work with, someone who I always felt like that woman's got her stuff together, you know, and of course she does. But I learned actually after those shoots that Faith has been through a lot in her life, including the death of her older brother, Michael, due to complications from HIV. So I've wanted to include an episode about grieving for some time on the podcast, and I just wasn't... There was nothing that was really coming to me. And once I learned this about faith, I thought I would ask her if she would talk about her experience of losing her brother and what the grieving process was like and how yoga helped her through that. And she was just so generous in telling her story that you'll hear today. I am so grateful to her for just being so open about her process and how challenging it was to grow up with two brothers, both of her brothers, were diagnosed with HIV very young and having to hide that from her community and the effect that had on her. And then also how yoga helped her not only through the grieving process, but to kind of repair some relationships with her family that were, you know, just really hard after the death of her older brother. So in the spirit of keeping things real, to me, it makes total sense to include an episode about grief and grieving around the holidays. The holidays are a time of reflection, they're a time of coming together with family, and that can be really challenging for us. Even if we are having a wonderful holiday season, there can also be those moments of challenge and emotion. So I hope this story inspires you, it it really inspires me. And if you are going through the grieving process right now, I hope it helps you feel a little bit less alone in the world. So your life story, your family of origin story is so moving to me. You grew up in a tiny town in Louisiana with two brothers, one four years older, one four years younger, and they were both diagnosed with hemophilia when they were young boys. And as you tell the story, your parents got a letter from the CDC in the Mm mid-80s. Can you tell the story of receiving that letter and, you know, how your family handled
1: it? Yeah. So I I remember my mom receiving the letter and, you know, my dad and they're they're reading the letter. And at the time, HIV was so new Mm -hmm. and people really didn't understand it and really didn't comprehend even how... People were infected by it. Right. However, they, you know, the Centers for Disease Control definitely knew that it was in America's blood supply, and of course, being spread around the world at the exact same time. The really fascinating part that a lot of people, I feel like, don't know, and I didn't really find this out until I actually started doing advocacy and social work, kind of uh, public service work around HIV and AIDS. But the Centers for Disease Control, of course, knew what was happening years before they started notifying people, which is wow. like. Devastating to hear that. It is. <laughs> really, yeah. Our government. Hmm. Um, and so when my parents finally you know, received the letter, it was like, wasn't saying that my brothers were HIV positive. It was just saying there's a potential that the blood product that they have been using for the past few years is potentially contaminated with this disease. Mm -hmm. And you need to go to your provider and get tested. Mm -hmm. And so fortunately, at the same time, the Hemophilia Foundation or Federation that work out of Tulane Medical Center, they were constantly, of course, my brothers were visiting them on an annual basis. They kind of found out about it around the same time as well. So the Centers for Disease Control was really keeping it very concealed. And then when they did the public notice, that's when a lot of the other healthcare providers started finding out as well. So we went to that clinic. Not only did my brothers get tested, but because it was so unknown around how even it was transmitted, our entire family was tested, mm-hmm. which was scary within itself. It's mm-hmm. like, oh my God, how are, is it contagious by touch? Is it contagious by using... Kissing. Utens- kissing, yeah. using utensils. Like it was like all this, all this fear was, of course, thrust on the media and, and people absorb that information. And so all of us were tested. And my brothers were the only one diagnosed with HIV. And I mean, I was like junior high school at the time because my older brother was in high school. And my younger brother, he was like a baby. I mean, he was mm-hmm. not even 10 yet. So the family, of course, that whole dynamic just completely shifted. Like I've always been accustomed, like as a kid, been accustomed to my brothers being ill in some shape or form or hospitals were always kind of like a standard in our family. Like one of them was sick for something Mm. or they were injured and needed to go get blood transfusions or get blood products to get their blood to clot. But this was like an added layer and it created just an enormous amount of fear. I'm sure. And stress. Yeah, like a tremendous (sighs) amount of stress. And I know my parents were trying their best to take care of us, but also create some level of normalcy. Like I think they did a fairly good job in that. And also holding on and containing their level of fear that they had. So it wasn't spreading to us. But in doing that and containing their level of fear, there was also this tremendous amount of secrecy. and really just our pastor and I think the principal at the school and maybe the the health counselors and then our own personal, we all, we all were in therapy, of course, at the same time. And so our own personal therapist knew, but that was really it for a really, really long time. And growing up with that knowledge and knowing that you can't, like our parents were like, don't tell. Mm. And so that's kind of how we moved about in the world. It's like, okay, let's have friends, but our friends don't get really close. And that just like really impacts you. Even like, I, I see how that has impacted even my life today mm-hmm. and how I interact and develop relationships with people that I don't know. Like it's brand new. And I'm like, uh oh. and I'm like, wait a minute. I have nothing to fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so I, can, I can still become new friends with this person. It's okay. But we just get in this pattern of behavior as children. And that kind of filters into our adulthood.
0: Yeah it's a lot to carry around. That was a lot for you all to carry all of you to carry around at that time. And as you said, I mean, we're the same age, mid 80s. No one knew anything about HIV or AIDS. And if you lived in a small town, I mean, I can just remember Ryan White was a really famous young boy who, I believe he was also hemophiliac. I can't remember. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, the things that happened to him at school and like the things that other families did, I mean, it was, it was traumatic for people to talk about at that time. So totally understandable that your family did that. And at the same time, like you said, it's like you kind of had to walk around with a mask a little bit.
1: Yeah. And it was it was like this serious double life that you're required to live as a child. And for me, it created a lot of just spiritual disconnect. Because at the time, like, I felt like I was a pretty spiritual kid. Like I loved going to church. And that was a really huge part of our family. And then I just like started to just draw inward and pull back and literally started to develop this sense of hate for God and this sense of not trusting, not necessarily my parents, but just trusting the comfort of others. And, you know, that adults are here to take care of us. And I just didn't feel that.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you really do look to adults at that time you're such a formative time and you need that trust to feel like everything's okay how did you ever discuss the challenges of that with your brothers or did you feel like you couldn't burden them because they were going through whatever they were going through physically
1: when it came to that like my younger brother I think it was really hard for him to articulate it like now he's so amazing in articulating his story. I mean, because he has his own, oh my God, his yeah. own story and how things panned out in his life over time around what was kept as a secret as a child. But my older brother, him and I were really, really close. And as he grew into adulthood and he went to college and med school and our relationship deepened. And so any of my fears and any of my frustrations I would actually have conversations with him about it my relationship with my dad stayed pretty strong my relationship with my mom literally broke down because my Mm. mom she was really having and I didn't realize this until like I was like after the yoga
0: (laughs) (laughs) before yoga after yoga
1: (laughs) yeah before yoga after yoga right so but prior to yoga our relationship was was really strained For me, I was like going through my own teenage stuff and then combine that with like not trusting. And I started lashing out at my parents and like, I've always had like a really good relationship with my dad. So he always kind of always felt like we understood each other. And he always gave me a little leniency, whereas my mom was much more of the disciplinarian. Mm -hmm. And of course, like her and I just would hit heads and it was it was not pretty. But my brother and I, Anytime I felt sad, anytime I felt angry, I would just go to him and just, "How are you doing? How you know? And how can you help me?" And because he went to school and we went to college, his track was science and going to medical school, and he started to explain the nuances around this disease, and then that started to help me a little bit, and encouraging me constantly to stay connected to a therapist, even if I wasn't going every week, or I would at least try and get in if I wasn't going every month, every couple of months, you know, drop in with the therapist and talk to somebody else. Like he's like, it's okay to like, talk to me or talk to dad, but you need to get your own shit sorted out. Yeah. So he was really encouraging in that sense. That must've
0: been really empowering for him to go to med school and feel like he could understand the science behind, behind his disease.
1: You know, I think it was really interesting because for him, it was going to medical school was something he had to do. He figured out this is what I'm put on this earth to do, and nothing is going to stop me from doing this, including my own disease, which was also, I felt him understanding the science around it and understanding all the things that were happening to him on uh, a physical as well as emotional level. Him being a physician was also his downfall. Because at the time, that was like probably the early 90s. Yeah, the early 90s. He was finishing up med school and he was in doing his residency. And he basically told, this is how he ended up dying. I mean, he told my parents that he didn't want to take his medication anymore because he was working in the emergency room and he loved doing that. And the meds that he was on was keeping him from being focused and awake. He couldn't do his, his job. He couldn't do his passion. Couldn't do his passion, he couldn't mm. do his job effectively because of the meds. And he's like, I'm going off of them. And my parents flip. Mm. And my dad was like, Well, he's a man. Like, that's his choice. And it was like really, really difficult. So it was like, if he wasn't in that lane, he would have stayed on his meds. He'd probably still be alive today. But because he was fully following his passion, that was the adult choice that he made and the spiritual choice that he made. He was like, this is where I am, and this is what I'm put on this earth to do, and it's like I am put on this earth to deliver babies and make sure that women in under in really horrible conditions ensure that they are receiving proper medical care from a man of color or a person of color like that mm-hmm. was his because he was working in east l a and making sure that you know women had health care and you know when they were delivering and had and had a face that looked like theirs, you know that Yeah.
0: Oh, my gosh, that must have been super hard for your whole family. And also, it's hard. And I mean, I'm sure you've gone over this, and you don't want to hear it again. But I mean, it also must be hard. Because nowadays, I would imagine the medicines would be easier to tolerate. I mean, I would hope. So you kind of have to think like, Oh, gosh, what what if it had happened at a time when there was a medication where he could have done his job, and he could have done his passion.
1: And even my younger brother, my younger brother, has never ever gone off of his meds, like from the time that he was seven years old. He's always stayed on his meds. And right now at this point, his viral load is completely undetectable.
0: Wow. Well that's yeah. great. That's great that they actually had you hear that there have been strides in the medication. So that's mm-hmm. that's great that he was able to find something that worked for him at that point and continues to work. That's great. So your brother Michael is uh mm-hmm. his older brother and when he decided to stop the medication did he have to stop working at that point?
1: He did. Like he worked for probably, I would say maybe another year off of meds. And then, I mean, it was, and this is how strong our relationship was as well. It, he left LA one night, a red eye, got on the plane, no luggage, just his backpack. And I was in grad school in New Orleans at the time. And he lands in New Orleans gives me a call and says, come and pick me up at the airport. And I'm like, huh? Like, I'm like, where are you coming from? (laughs) Yeah. And he's like, I'm here. And so I go pick him up at the airport and he's like, I want to go to the apartment, take a nap. And then we have to call mom and dad because I need to check myself into the hospital.
0: Oh, he knew, he knew he'd sort of deteriorated.
1: Yeah. 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 And that's the thing is like being a physician, he knew what was going on Hmm. and I vividly remember that day. It's like we sit there on my sofa in my apartment and we're talking and he's like gonna take a nap and then we wake up and we, he wakes up and we call my, my parents. And of course, they're like about five, six hours away. They jump in the car. By the time they get there, he's already checked into the hospital and probably seven to eight months later, he was gone.
0: Mm. Yeah. How did your family get through that time together? I mean, you mentioned that, your pastor in your hometown was a solid influence on your family. Was it the community? Was it church? Was it each other? Was it just, you know, how did you get through that time together?
1: I would say for my mom, it was without a doubt, the church. That's always been her place to drop into. And fortunately, she had that. For me, it wasn't. Mm -hmm. For me, it was my younger brother and my dad. And in even like there were times where my mom and I would try to like mend <laughs> our relationship, you know. It's like because you know we always loved each other, but it was a little you know sketchy from time to time. You pushed
0: each other's buttons.
1: We oh yeah yeah
0: I get it I get it.
1: <laughs> and it's really funny now because our relationship is so different now. So it was my my brother and and my dad and probably I would say. You know, of course, my yoga. But about four months, four to five months after my brother passed, I ended up meeting my my husband. So my ex husband, actually, at the time. So I ended up meeting him, and it was. And I always say that he was in my life at the perfect time, at the perfect moment, and when I met him, I immediately told him what I was going through. Yeah, It's like one of those moments where your girlfriend calls you and like, you need to get your butt out of the house. And so <laughs> she's, and she used to be, she was a bass player in like a reggae band or something in New Orleans. And she's like, come out tonight. There's some friends there. Plus there's this guy I want you to meet. I was like, I don't want to meet some God, <laughs> God whatever. And it was my ex-husband and he was, In the Marine Corps and a DJ and whatnot, but when I met him, we literally like you hear these weird stories where we met and we talked all night long. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Literally, that's what we did. Wow! And it was like literally, here's my whole story, here's his whole story, and we couldn't stop talking and we didn't leave each other aside for six years. Oh my gosh, that friend knew you well.
0: (laughs) If she said (laughs) there's someone you had to meet,
1: and then he ended up being like your beloved for that long. Really, I mean, we got married and everything, but it was like that time that we were together was right around my beginning stages of like really being committed to my yoga practice. And it was like, I feel like it was all of those really key elements. It was like, you know what? He was loving me unconditionally. I was loving myself. Finally, I was opening up and I had this opportunity to heal. And it took I swear, it took six years, like the the entire time that him and I were together was the entire time that it took me to heal from my brother's death.
0: Sure. Yeah. So it was like a a whole grieving process that you feel like took you that amount of time, long time.
1: And I mean, you know, when I tell people that sometimes people ask online, they're like, Oh, my God, you know, my, this woman was like, Oh, my God, my daughter died two years ago. And I just broke down two days ago. And I'm like, Honey, I still break down. Sure, <laughs> so yeah. like, you know it's almost twenty plus years later, and I'm still out. Something will trigger me, and I'll fall to pieces. Yeah, I never know. Something will remind me, and I mean, I have a picture of my brother that sits by my desk, and I see his face every day. That's not my trigger. That's my comfort. But there's something that will remind me of him if I'm getting ice cream or a sunset or just like random stuff, and boom, waterworks. Yeah, but it's. I still need those moments to know that it happened. Right. And right. I'm still this awesome human that feels, and I, I haven't numbed myself so much that I've forgotten what it's like to love somebody that much.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting for me to hear you say those things and to say like ice cream or maybe a smell or something, I guess, sad as I know that is, it also feels sounds so beautiful to hear, you know what I mean? That, his memory is alive in you still, like you said, it's been more than twenty years. But like he was your brother, and so that's such a beautiful thing. Like it's such a, it's like you said, it's like proof you're alive and proof that he's mm-hmm. there, and that it's kind of incredible to to think about that. Um, it's like it's what keeps us connected to our humanity. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. So you know, my mom has said, my mom has, she's the youngest of six. Mm -hmm. so she has two of her sisters have already passed and both of her parents have already passed. And so she told me that for her, it's like the first year she feels sad every day. You know, it's like, even if she's having a good day, like she feels, you know, she feels like some sadness every day. And then like the second year, she might not feel sadness every day, but she thinks of them every day or, Mm -hmm. you know, that kind of thing. I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about like your grieving process and just in the spirit of helping other people understand that it's normal. You know what I mean? It's like something we don't talk about that openly. And I feel like you're really good at talking about this. And especially as a yoga teacher, you know, I have to agree with your mother.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. In the, in the vein that, you know, that first year was the hardest year of my life. And I was in graduate school. I was working on my MBA at the time. And I had to drop out of school for a semester because I could not function. Fortunately, I was working for the health department doing social advocacy around HIV and AIDS. And my boss understood. Yeah. <laughs> she knew where I was coming from. So she always would give me a little leeway. But I would go home, I would walk to, to get lunch, I would wake up in the morning, you know, I'd roll over to, to my guy at the time that I was telling you about earlier, like, and just cry Mm. it would take me sometimes two to three hours to get out of the house to go to work and that's when I realized I I told my mom it's like uh I'm not gonna go to school for a semester and it was the hardest thing because I was already probably two months into a semester and I wasn't even going to class because I couldn't even make it up the steps and could be and part of it was because I remember filling out my application and he was there and like you know, helping me find an apartment, like the apartment I was living in was one he helped me find. Like, it was just like, everything was just spinning in my head, like crazy, like every single image of New Orleans, because that's where he went to grad, he went to undergrad. So everything of the city reminded me of him, like I couldn't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. We did this together, we did that together. So it took me definitely a good year, almost two years just pull myself together a little bit that I could actually function. And after that, I couldn't have images and photos of him around and I couldn't see them. Hmm. And that's around the time, like after I finally graduated from grad school, I immediately left and went to D.C. And it was really fascinating because I could work in HIV and AIDS and go to work. And because even when I moved to D.C., I was still working in that field and nonprofit. And I could help other people. But I couldn't deal with my own stuff fully. And sure. completely. Yeah. And that's how most people that are in healthcare are anyway. They're like, I've been through a whole lot, but I can focus on other people. <laughs> yeah, I mean,
0: it makes sense. It's like a channel, you ch- get to channel that <laughs> I channel. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. It's like, I'm in this for the fight. We're gonna like, Sure, we're going to like get quality health care for people that can't afford it. Like, like I could do all of those things, but rolling over. And if I even thought that my mother was going to call me and say my brother's name in her conversation, I couldn't deal with it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I would probably say then another few years went by and it probably took me maybe four to five years before I could actually even go Back to my parents' house.
0: Oh wow! Yeah, yeah.
1: So I didn't spend Christmas, and even I mean, and even my mom's grieving process. My older brother was the one that would come home and decorate the tree. Like we would wait till he would get off the plane from LA to freaking trim the tree. Are you serious, mom? We have to wait. Yes, we have to wait. So it's like that was his thing, and so she stopped doing the tree. Like that was her process, and like I could not get into the house. So I didn't go home. Wow. Yeah. And so she knew I couldn't go home. And then around 2001 is when my dad died. I had to go home.
0: And that was like four to five years later. Oh, this, yeah.
1: Years oh, later. Yeah. So it's like, okay, I got to go home.
0: <laughs> yeah. So
1: I finally went home. And it was, even though it was like my dad's death, it was a, uh, really good healing process because I ended up not just going home for my my dad's funeral but I made a connection with my mother yeah in a very different way because she was now not only still dealing with the death of her son, you know, she's still dealing with that, now she's dealing with the death of her husband. Now she has all these fears because now she only has two kids. Like she's like I only have two people in my family. Mm-hmm. And you guys are so important to me. And so her way of dealing with stuff is to organize. Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) That is a mother's way, by the way.
1: (laughs) She's organizing her life and getting everything into place for her day. And I'm like, calm down. (laughs) (laughs) But in the same way, I'm like, I understand. So I didn't finally shift into a place where I'm like, I'm finally healing. And then I started seeing a therapist in New York around my dad's death. And, and 9-11 had happened, you know, at that time too. So it was like, you were living in New York when 9-11 happened. Oh my gosh. 9-11 happened. Yeah. And I remember being like, in Rockefeller Center because I was working there and I couldn't do HIV AIDS work anymore. So I was working in the entertainment industry. I was working for a record company. Taking a so break, up. taking a breather. <laughs> <laughs> breather, yeah, basically. That's what I'm doing. Taking a breather from serving. I was yeah. like, do this. And so I, my dad calls and this is, you know, of course, two months before his death. And he's like, your mother's worried about you. Are you safe? And I'm like, yeah, 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 I'm safe. Everything's good. And then the phone disconnects because the second tower hit. And so having that experience, Experience of my dad's death, going back home, and then returning to New York after my dad's funeral, and spending Thanksgiving. Because my dad, so just to let your followers, your, your your listeners know, my dad's death was November fifteenth, which mm. was last week. recently, yeah. So, which is also another bizarre situation around that is that that day is also his birthday. Oh my goodness. Wow. So my, and so, my younger brother, you know, his way of dealing with that situation, and we kind of laugh about it now as kids or as adults, you know, when we were younger and we were in our 20s, it wasn't very funny. We we're like, why the hell did dad have to die on his birthday? <laughs> totally. That's so true. Like, really, dude? Really? <laughs> oh, my God. Like, that was also in the military, and he's very precise yeah. about everything in his life. That's probably why him and my mom actually got along. You know, I often wondered. and I was like, they're so different, but no, at the core. Underneath both it, yeah. Deep. They're very, very organized and extremely precise about everything. And now we were like, yeah, he probably wouldn't have had it any other way. Oh my gosh, it's <laughs> crazy. You know, so we had my father's funeral a couple of days before Thanksgiving, and I ended up staying there a little bit longer because it was Thanksgiving. And we ended up going to take a family trip to New Orleans for a football game. And it was actually really, really healing. Because mm. we were like around old friends and other family members. And we were doing something together that we hadn't done in mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. It was like my mom, my brother, you know, we're all together. And my cousins is like, yay, family is good. Yeah,
0: <laughs> that's so nice. But like, but you actually gave yourself enough time and space to get to that place too, which is was really wise on your part.
1: I, yeah, I don't know how wise it was. Like at the time, I didn't think it was very wise. I really felt like I was running. And even my therapist at the time told me, you're running away from your emotions. Hmm. I was like, okay, but I'm talking to you about them, at least.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know, I just feel like we're not linear beings. Like it's like not how emotions and feelings work. And everyone says, you know, Grief is not a linear process. Like Kubler-Ross came up with that grief process and people sometimes feel like they're failing quote unquote, because they go back, right? Like you take two steps forward, then you take a few steps back and then you go around and around and the pain is there. And it's like, yeah, I mean, I don't know when I hear things like that, like, oh, you're running free from your feelings. It's like, you're just, you're just doing the best you can, you know, and you'll, and you'll deal with your feelings when you
1: can deal with your feelings. It is a process. Some people work through things different with, me. Mm-hmm. so, and the time frame is so different. Like the track and time frame that I was on was very different from my mother's. Hmm. Hers took a lot longer
0: hmm.
1: a lot longer. And I think because i I was the only girl and the daughter, and I've always been very spiritual, that by me stepping into the practice me doing my consistent meditation that I was able to mend my relationship with my mom and through that mending of that relationship and even her spirituality as well, that she was able to make that shift finally and mm. work through what she needed to when it came to both my, my mom, my brother and my father. Yeah. But again, we were, we were both on two different tracks. Like my mom was eating her feeling. Mm. Yeah, something happened where it triggered and she's like, I can't do this anymore. And she's like, I'm going walking. And <laughs> she's like, and she's just walking it out. Like that was her zen. Good for her. That was her spot. She's like "I'm going walking with my friends. And she was doing that. And so on that track, every morning, she was walking it out. And it took years for her to walk it out.
0: Yeah, I know when I felt grief, like I always feel like when I'm ready to move my body, like in a conscious way, like exercise or do yoga. It's like a good sign that I'm kind of getting to another level because when I'm first in it like I just can't even move. You know, I just can't even like I the thought of like t- you know taking my shoulders away from my ears cuz I'm so hunched over and like it's so hard. And then when I'm like, okay, I can do some sun salutations or I can take a walk yeah. and be out in the world. It's like such a good sign that you are kind of moving moving Mm -hmm. through it a little bit. When you went back for your father's funeral, you'd had a regular yoga practice like since college, right?
1: Yeah. So I started practicing a little bit in college and then I made it a consistent thing when I say actually I had a real teacher Uh (laughs) by the time I was in grad school when I had actually a real teacher. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have a yoga community
0: at that time when you were living in New York or were you just finding your way?
1: My first year in New York, I didn't have much money. So I just bounced around to every possible new deal that was offered in the city. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so I did that for a long time. And so by then I was divorced. And so then I was living with another guy. Um, and so he, he's like, I'm going to just buy you a membership to the gym because you seem to like that teacher. And I'm like, yeah, she's cool. It was it was Amy Ippoliti. Oh, wow. That's awesome. <laughs> oh, my gosh. She was teaching at results. And so I would go to the results on Lafayette. Yeah. And then I noticed that there was also, at the time, Jeeva Mukti was right next to the results on Lafayette. So I jumped in there a couple of times and you know took advantage of their thing and then bounced around to a couple of other places. And then finally, I was in New York around Thanksgiving one year. And I was like, I I need to go practice somewhere. So I'm like trying to find a good place to practice. And so I noticed that Laughing Lotus, which was still on Christopher Street, had a Thanksgiving Day class and Jasmine was teaching. And I was like, okay, I'll go to that class. All I have to do is bring a can of food. I can handle that. So I step in and I take class from, from Jasmine, it was Thanksgiving, and I remember being it was such a tiny space. I remember being right next to the fireplace that wasn't working anymore. Every time I'd like take a twist, my knee, like a, a reclined spine twist, my knees would fold over into the fireplace.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> those, those old funky yoga studios. I miss yeah. them sometimes.
1: <laughs> I, just, I was like, I just fold over. I was like oh, okay, I'm in the fireplace, whatever. And I was like, but this is a good class. I need to be here. And then I finally made a commitment to Lotus, and then I just started going there. And I remember seeing that they had a yoga teacher training program and whatnot. And I thought about it. and I told, I mentioned it to Jasmine, and I was like, but then, at the time, my younger brother was dealing with some medical issues, and he was like, I need help. And so I was like, okay, I'll come and help and take care of him for six months. And I couldn't do teacher training that year. But the fortunate part when I was I was in Arkansas with my younger brother. Helping to take care of him while he was doing some, basically he was on some medical trials and doing some other stuff for blood tests, and the meds were just not—they were making him really, really sick. But I ended up coming in contact with an amazing Ayangar teacher while I was there, and her and her family just like opened their doors to us, and they were just like really beautiful people. And she became like one of my mentors. Um, And then I went back to New York and did training at Laughing Lotus in two thousand three.
0: You're such a good sister. I'm so glad that your <laughs> brother's well now.
1: My younger one now, I love him up so much that every now and then like we, we got into an argument like about t- two months ago and he goes, Faith, I'm a grown man with a wife and two sons. <laughs> <laughs> I think I got this. So I'm like, oh. Oh, yes, Okay. Let me back up. He's like, I know your mom always want to protect me. Oh. I got, let me handle this one on my own I got it yeah oh my gosh that's great
0: So going back, you know, you mentioned earlier in the conversation, like that you feel like there was the relationship with your mom before yoga and then after yoga. So how do you feel like yoga helped you mend that tension between you and your mom? Do you think it was just your own internal shifts?
1: Part of it was my own internal shifts of letting go of the little arguments that we would have. And, you know, just as much as my mom knows how to push my buttons. I know how to push hers as well. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> of course you do. Yeah. My daughter already knows how to push my buttons. It's hilarious. It's crazy.
1: I've been learning that since I was like, walking. Yep. And, and you know, when I used to, of course, when I was younger, playing my dad against her, she was a master at my mother. But I, it was definitely an internal personal shift of, of letting go of these little things that we would argue about that were just so unimportant anymore. And I think the big piece was just becoming a grown woman. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And my mom also acknowledging that I was an adult and trusting and relying in me, in my decisions and my choices and me, me making the choice to, to move to D.C. Up right after my brother's death and graduating and then taking that jump to move to New York and, you know, all of those steps, she was like, don't do it. Don't do it. I need you close. Can you just come back to New Orleans? Come back to Louisiana, please. Right. And, but she seeing that I was stepping out and, you know, having that conversation with her is like, mom, you and dad did a really good job. Mm. You guys made me adventurous and brave. And my, the bulk of my bravery and my strength comes from watching you. That's major, you know, and yeah. I, I told her that, and she was like, "Whoa, and then having the conversation because she also was like, "You're not going to church da, 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 and reminding her like you know my yoga, my meditation is my my time I talk to God, and like having that conversation with her as well shifted our relationship that's so nice, yeah, now I get it, like I understand why you do this thing and and her scene. Me being nicer and much more considerate and me I mean, because I have a lot of fire in me. My mm-hmm. dad would always say that I was just like my my grandmother, just like all fire. <laughs> and it's so true. My mom seen that I had a handle on that. Yeah. And I was able to t- like direct that fire in a different direction instead of it just coming out. Ah. Right, you know, towards the people I love, because that's what what happened. It's like it wasn't with the people that made me angry at work or pissed me off on the street. I was taking it out on them because they were the closest,
0: right? Or yourself, like you know I, what I mean, like or exactly. you were burning up inside instead of like channeling it or harnessing it. So you took that fire and you opened your own yoga studio in DC. How long have has Embrace Yoga been
1: open? Yeah, so Embrace has been open now six almost seven years we're going we're coming up on our seventh year and even before that actually a lot of people don't know i owned another yoga studio before i opened embrace so i had i had a business partner and our, my so my first studio i opened was shakti and i had that with a business partner for 3 years that relationship dissolved and then i stepped out on my own about a year after that and opened up embrace 6 months ago yeah
0: you told a story in one of the podcasts that i was listening to about Just this realization that the community there, your yoga community is an actual active live spiritual, you know, community that you're serving. And I I just want to read this one quote from you, which I think is just really kind of encapsulates it. It's really lovely. It says, I know in my heart, if I follow what I love, if I live a life filled with joy based on the community that I have, there's a purpose in my life. I don't have to make a lot of money. I don't have to have a beautiful home. I don't have to have a husband. Follow your heart, follow your passions, live your life fully and with purpose. And I just think that's really beautiful. So yeah, how does it feel to kind of be the, you're like the pastor of your own community now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) As owning a yoga studio for people that have yoga studios that have small mom and pop yoga studios, that's kind of how I categorize it. It's, It's tiny. But for those we know, it's not easy. It's mm-hmm. one of the hardest parts of being in the yoga industry is having your own studio. And it really is a labor of love. It really is. My God, we, uh, my God, myself and my studio manager, we make jokes about it, but it is so real. We call it our our love project. <laughs> yeah, <it's> like, <laughs> how, how can we keep the love project alive? That's like this
0: podcast. Trust me, I totally get this. <laughs> I, totally I just get need it. to
1: keep it alive for everybody. And and I've gone through massive ups and downs. Like I I wasn't in D.C. for two years. I left and moved to New York to do some things there and then came back to D.C. Even though my studio was still open, I came back to D.C. a year ago because it was failing. And I was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? It's failing now. There's no captain on this ship and mm. I need to get back. But the thing is when I made the decision to come back and I hired a new studio manager who's with me now, she's been with me a little bit over a year and a half. We're both on the same trajectory Mm. when it comes to serving this community. Mm. And we talk every day and it always comes from a place of what do our our people need? Mm. Are we creating quality workshops quality classes are we hiring the right people like we don't spend our time going okay we need to hire the rock star teachers in DC mm-hmm. we don't really care about the rock star teachers in DC we're like we have a great group that are committed and loving to this community of the people that are walking in because they know the names they know the ailments they like they know when someone's cat dies mm-hmm. and <laughs> yeah like everything, they know when that person's going to see their family or visiting Madagascar for three weeks and now they're finally back and everybody's like, Aaron and Jake, you're back from Madagascar today, we missed you, right? Or like we have a new guy that just stepped into our community, his name is Reggie and it's so beautiful when not only myself or other yoga teachers notice that his, the sound of his own is gone. Oh, yeah, comes back in the room. And other students say, Reggie, we missed your home.
0: That is awesome. and
1: That's when I know that I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to do. Like that's following my love, my commitment and my passion to this practice. And part of it is creating a space for other people to feel safe, to feel welcomed, to feel loved. And to feel like they can drop in at any moment in time and know that they have a family.
0: Mm -hmm. I know that there's a lot of people who listen who are teachers and, and who are studio owners too. And it sounds like you have like a really clear, using a yoga word, intention behind your studio. You know kind of why it's there, what it's doing for you, what it's doing for the community. Do you feel like you had that when you started the studio or did you kind of figure it out? After you decided to get it started?
1: Um, That deep passion started a little bit later. Like, Mm -hmm. my original reason for opening up the yoga studio was because I wanted a place, which still comes back to service, but I wanted a place to offer my yoga teacher training program Mm -hmm. because I was doing it in different locations for about a year after having the first studio. And I was like, my trainees need a home. Mm -hmm. And I need somewhere to ground because at that time I was also starting to travel a lot more. And every time I was coming back to DC, I was still teaching at a gym or teaching at someone else's studio. And I just didn't feel connected and rooted. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I need somewhere to ground. And then I start thinking about a year in, I'm like, I'm having this deep desire to feel rooted and grounded. And every time I walk into embrace, I feel at home. Mm-hmm. I need, sure that I'm cultivating that energy for other people. And over time, it started to shift into that. But coming back to DC a year and a half ago, that connection has deepened even more, like it's become even greater. And my drive and my passion around why that studio is here is even more crucial. And combine that with, the political climate in our country right now. Oh, yeah, you're right in the middle of it. Yep. Oh, my God, we're (laughs) in D.C. Like, and we're in the heart of like this multicultural neighborhood. Yeah. Like we're in Adams Morgan. And it's filled with people from all walks of life, from all countries and ethnicities. And we're just in this really amazing melting pot, which is probably one of the few multicultural neighborhoods that's still left in D.C. Wow, I didn't know that. Oh yeah, DC is a whole different. Like it freaked yeah, me out when I saw yeah. like a one point four million dollar two bedroom condo coming up in my neighborhood, because mm. I live in this neighborhood too. So, mm-hmm. and I've always lived near my studio, which has always been really important to me because I want to be able to go to the grocery store, which is kind of weird, but I do kind of like it, go to the grocery store and see my students walking. I'm like <laughs> walking Sebastian down the street. And one of my students walks up and goes, I didn't know you lived in this neighborhood. I'm uh-huh. like, yeah. yeah. And I'm my Uggs in my bathrobe. excuse me. Yes. Right, so having that deep connection to, to this Adams Morgan, that's our neighborhood to my community in this neighborhood is so crucial. And I try and take that love and that connection and infuse it into not only the studio space, but the energy that we have from the teachers all the way through the front desk staff. And we try to make sure that we continue to cultivate this sense of commitment and service to the people walking through the door. And we even changed our mission last January, kind of right after November happened, And it was like, things are shifting in how we're serving. And we saw it. We saw this awesome shift. And we're like, we need to change our mission. And so it's really about freedom, growth and joy. And those are like the three primary things that we want people to experience when they walk in the door.
0: Mm, That's nice. Do you feel a difference in energy, just with the new administration coming in? Or do you feel that I mean, I guess you you were in New York for a little while. I was going to say, do you feel it every time there's sort of like a changing of the guard in the administration?
1: Yeah, I mean, and and it always, of course, it always depends because I've lived in D.C. for multiple presidents. Right, um, right. From Democrat to Republican and, you know, over the years. But when it comes to being a studio owner because also I've owned a studio at different points in, with different administrations because I had my first one that was like during the Republican era. Mm-hmm. and then the one I have now was mostly Democrat and then now it's Republican and what. But I've noticed the huge shift now over the past year is that our students, our students, I don't know about any other studios, but our students want more yin, more restorative, more slow flow and connection. Yeah. In times of
0: instability, maybe more grounding, more quiet. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Like, get me wrong. They like, they want to go our power classes. They want to go to, we have like a class that's like on Saturday, that's a little more after party hip hop kind of thing. They'll go to that, but there's a, a demand Mm -hmm. for the much more grounding, more rooted, much more nurturing classes to the point that I'm like, oh my God, I have to buy more bolsters. Oh my God, (laughs) wow. (laughs) Came in last week. I was like, are you serious? I really need to buy more. I was like, okay, I'm going to buy more. But it was because that's the demand. That's where things are falling right now.
0: Yeah, yeah. I saw in your bio that you taught at one of the White House Easter egg rolls. Yes. What was that like? When when was that? And, and yeah, who
1: was so so that was I was actually multiple years. I think I did it for probably five Ooh. or six years. Wow. Yeah, and so that was of course during the Obama years. First Lady Obama. She was the driving force behind it, mm-hmm. and was really like a really beautiful experience because everyone that's actually working the the Easter egg roll during that time, we're all volunteers. No one's getting paid. Mm-hmm. And everybody's there to offer up what they do best. And everything from like professional football players tossing the ball with kids to people dressed up like cartoon characters or us, creating this yoga space for, for kids because that was part of her get moved campaign. But the thing that I loved about it is that kind of like our neighborhood in here in DC, if you walk on the, the White House lawn and see kids and families from all walks of life. And it's like that's our America. Mm. And I'm serving people from all over the country and kids that live in some of the worst neighborhoods here in DC that would never ever get on a yoga mat. And even like at the end, I think proud of, it was great like teaching the classes and teaching them meditation and teaching them how to own like they're on the white house, you know, chanting Ohm. But at the end of or our day, we would take all the yoga mats and we, you know, every year we'd have different yoga mat sponsors, but we roll up the yoga mats and hound them out. And we were always really strategic. <laughs> about who we're handing mats to. Oh, yeah, and yeah. And it's like these families would come up and they're like, can I get a yoga mat? And they're, they're like, my kid does yoga in the public school in D.C. and we can't afford to send a yoga mat with them. And I'm like, oh my God, yeah. So it's like these families getting yoga mats or these mothers and fathers walking up and go, you know, it was really cool to have you guys here because our kids do yoga in school, like, which was great. Mm-hmm. But our kids never do yoga. And this is their first time giving it a try. I never thought my child would sit on a yoga mat or I never thought that I would get on a yoga mat. Wow. Having adults like give it a try for the first time was was really powerful. And being able to like just share this practice on many levels from the practice all the way down to saying, you know what? Here's your first yoga mat.
0: Wow. Yeah. That was so forward thinking of Michelle Obama to include yoga in part of her. I was, I, I remember, you know, Caitlin, the former editor and chief of yoga journal, she went one year. And so I remember hearing about it and just thinking like, wow, this is we I don't know if we ever thought that day would come, you know, where it's yeah. so normalized, like you said, it's mm-hmm. just part of the American picture. And it's even cooler to hear that there were all different kinds of people there. I didn't know that I didn't know how, like who got invited or how you got an invitation. So yeah, that's awesome. That's really nice to hear.
1: It's Really beautiful. Like, so they would always announce it and there was a big lottery. But then, you know, our government officials could, like, send things out to their congressional areas, and they also had a really big push where they would work with local D.C.-based nonprofits and public schools and charter schools to ensure that those kids would come as well. So, again, they were being very strategic to ensure that it was a broad mix of of families and children there. Yeah.
0: That's nice. And you know, it makes such a difference when your kid, um, I mean, I like at least I see this with my kid, when you're introduced to something and it's not through your parents, like it's through a different adult who might seem cool or you know, who you look up to. Or I would think that, yeah, probably some of those kids, even if they their parents did do yoga, it would still be worthwhile to have them Definitely. have it introduced in that setting. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, we we're coming up on an hour, which is so hard for me to believe. <laughs> oh I know
1: is there anything else you want to add or talk about? I think probably the other thing kind of going back to the beginning part of our conversation is when you're dealing with loss overall, I always say, you know, of course, deal with your emotions, be okay with feeling those sensations. And knowing that, don't rush through, don't feel like you have to rush the process, process because other people are telling you this is where what you should feel at this moment in time give yourself permission to be wherever you are at the same time find or connect with someone else or other tools to help support that process that are going to be positive to help you move through those feelings and emotions like when i think back to my family and The three of us, meaning my mom, my younger brother, and I, we all had our different processes. But the one thing that we did have were specific tools and support. I had my yoga community. I had my yoga practice. I had each other, of course. My mom had her church. She had her friends that were right there and holding her. My younger brother, he was also very spiritual, so he had the church as well. But he had like this core group of friends that have always been by his side. Like, I don't even know how he still has friends from, like, childhood that <laughs> That's are, like, amazing. five years old. Like, now they're all 40-some-year-old men, right? And he has, like, these three or four guys that have been with him through it all from time they were little to, like, now. And he had therapy. Like, as a Black man going to therapy, oh, my God. Like, and he's done it. Like, he knows the value of it. And I think part of that just started as a family. We knew the value of, of therapy as a family of color. I know. Which I, is,
0: I was impressed when you said that in the 80s, your family went to therapy, like any, just the 80s itself. Like, I don't the know. 80s. And just and the only reason, talked about therapy or families didn't talk about therapy. Yeah.
1: The only reason we did is because of the hemophilia clinic, because they had social workers and they were constantly pushing it. <laughs> go to counseling, go to counseling, go to counseling. That's smart.
0: Yeah. If you're not accustomed to the idea, you do need someone to kind of destigmatize it for you and say like, it's not going to be as awful as you think. It'll actually be helpful. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Well, thank you so, so, so much. It's so great to reconnect with you. And I just, just love talking to you. And it's great to hear your story. And my best friend lives in DC. So next time I come out, I'm coming to your studio.
1: Oh my God. Yes. You have to practice. Yeah, it's, it's a sweet, cute little, colorful space where we we pack it in, and it's lots of good stuff and such a beautiful variety of offerings. And I just absolutely love all of my teachers. I'm like, how can I? And like, I look back at the years that I'm and I'm like, I absolutely love each of these teachers, and each of them are so different and unique and beautiful in their offerings. I'm glad they opt because they have many other options here in DC. Uh, They opt to hang out with us.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, you know, you hold the space as well and, and create that opportunity for them to be themselves. So it's huge. Thanks, Faith. Thanks for everything. Thank
1: you so very much. Have a good
0: one. (laughs) You too. Thanks so much for listening just wanted to give you a heads up that I have a bonus episode coming up this week with Jason Crandall on creating short sequences for yourself over the holidays. So if you're not already a subscriber to the podcast, make sure you hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to it. And you won't miss when these little extra bits of content are released. Thanks so much. Until next week, enjoy your practice.